Welcome to the ParkCast series, episode 43, part 2, Decision-Making in Child Welfare, The Migrant Case. The ParkCast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This podcast outlines existing research on interventions involving migrants in the child welfare system, focusing particularly on the practices and programming available that has increased cultural competence levels. This podcast is the second in the series on migrant families' involvement with the child welfare system. While the first podcast aimed at developing a framework for thinking about migrant involvement, the current literature review focuses on the decision-making environment for practitioners, as well as specific interventions involving migrants. In particular, we will focus on one of the major elements highlighted in the framework podcast, the relevance of cultural experiences. Three themes are explored. First, a description of the decision-making process for child welfare involvement with migrants is reviewed. This section highlights the spectrum in decision-making, ranging from cultural absolutism to cultural relativism. Second, this podcast outlines a variety of interventions, such as practices and programs, described in the literature. Finally, a brief discussion is had on the relevance of evaluation of such interventions. Each of the three sections highlights the methodological opportunities and challenges. In addition, reflective questions are included to promote discussion around cultural competence and suggested approaches to working with migrants. Given the gap in research on child welfare interventions, the current podcast expands its focus to extend beyond interventions in Canada. In some cases, non-academic sources are used to describe specific interventions developed in Canada. It should also be noted, this podcast uses the term migrant to refer to both voluntary immigration as well as involuntary immigration, such as refugees and asylum seekers, and the term caregiver is used to represent any parent or guardian. Cultural Absolutism and Cultural Relativism There is an inherent tension described in the literature when understanding child welfare decision-making involving migrants. On one end of the continuum is a cultural absolutism approach. This perspective is characterized as an imposition of an individualistic value system. Sometimes described as a one-size-fits-all approach, it suggests that a single set of values and morals exist and decisions are made based on a single perspective about what is regarded as right or wrong. Thus, similar situations and relationships exist universally. In terms of child welfare, cultural absolutism sees the child's safety as paramount, coming before the interest of preserving the family unit. Further, culture can be separated from abusive or neglective behaviors through the use of objective, culture-neutral tools. On the other end of the spectrum is the idea of cultural relativism. This perspective favors a more collectivist approach compared to cultural absolutism. Advocates of relativism suggest that the morality and values of one's culture cannot be questioned since there are no objective truths. Given the wide variety of customs and practices, awareness and sensitivity to cultural differences are essential. 
and decisions are made based on the understanding of the individual or family within their own cultural context. That is, one cannot make judgments about the rightness or wrongness of the values and practices of another culture without placing these elements within their cultural perspective. From a child welfare lens, it is the responsibility of practitioners to be mindful of cultural tendencies when assessing maltreatment. Thus, the tension that forms is the expectation of equality versus the need to take into account actions based on cultural norms. For cultural absolutists, a cultural relativist approach leads to the protection of abusive behavior through cultural correctness, risking a rise in false negatives, the possibility of actual harm not being addressed. Cultural relativists, on the other hand, point to the fact that cultural absolutism is simply an imposition of a particular set of cultural beliefs that allows for cultural oppression. Further, the belief that culture cannot and does not change what is inherently regarded as right or wrong can allow for false positive results. Those not at risk are exposed to the child welfare system due to the belief in a universal standard of parenting and family functioning. Methods matter. The notion of false negatives, a condition thought to not occur when it actually did occur, and false positives, a condition thought to occur when it actually did not occur, is an important set of concepts in both statistical analysis and child welfare. Within child welfare, much has been discussed about the tolerance for risk when investigating possible maltreatment cases. Does one choose to side on the risk ledger, possibly leading to more false positives, exposing children and families needlessly to child welfare services, or take a more risk-oriented approach that may lead to more false negatives, concluding maltreatment did not occur when it did? Child welfare as currently practiced overwhelmingly takes a false positive approach. At the very extremes of this continuum lie issues such as female genital mutilation, which can be viewed as irresponsible harm to a child overseen by caregivers, or a cultural ceremony to entrench a child into society. A more widely applicable situation to child welfare in North America is the issue of child-rearing practices. Cultural Relativism and Research one line of thought suggests that subjective judgment often informs child welfare workers who are constantly required to make judgments about the safety of children, particularly when it comes to physical and emotional abuse. Subjective decision-making by workers, influenced by everyday practices as well as organizational and sector demands and legislation, are likely to take a cultural absolutist approach to evaluating cases. Empirical research has found supporting evidence of workers practicing through a cultural absolutist lens. That is, decision-making has been consistent with a belief in universal causes of child welfare involvement, such as poverty. Multiple studies have found that, for example, the immigration status of an individual did little to explain involvement with child welfare services when controlling for other factors. Instead, educational experiences were the key predictor not the status of being an immigrant. The exception has been with refugees, where refugee status remained a significant contributing factor to involvement with child welfare services. Undue stress has been put forth as the mechanism for this relationship. The prolonged asylum procedure, the uncertainty about the asylum status, inconvenient housing, and forced unemployment during waiting times all are thought to contribute to stress. In addition, 
Parental unemployment in the first year after arrival strongly increases the risk for mental illness in refugee children. Methods matter. Statistical controls are an important element in isolating relevant variables. Including a variety of relevant variables in statistical analysis are used to rule out possible predictors of an event. In the discussion on migrant involvement in child welfare, there is evidence to suggest that immigration status and the cultural ramifications behind that are not readily taken into account when investigating possible maltreatment cases. The exception is when looking at refugee status families. While there are theories and empirical evidence to suggest that child welfare practitioners may view migrants and immigrants specifically through a cultural absolutist lens, the academic research community has clearly advocated for a more cultural relativist approach to decision-making. Sauerker and colleagues, for example, suggest that there is an overwhelming body of evidence to show that culture is not simply a superficial addition to the biological development of children, but is a core part of the developmental process. Many have argued that a culture-neutral approach is inappropriate for child protection. Others have indicated the need for targeted and individualized approaches rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. Critiques of cultural absolutism have not necessarily led to support for extreme cultural relativism. Instead, adapted or modified forms of cultural relativism have been promoted, recognizing Western values yet willing to integrate these values with the experiences of migrant families and communities. Sauerker and colleagues promote a moderate form of cultural relativism by suggesting the tension between relativism and absolutism needs to be addressed through education, providing stakeholders with the drawbacks associated with each approach to mitigate risk. Further, a modified cultural relativist approach has been found to be consistent with UN conventions on the best interest of the child. Thus, the academic community has shifted the debate from whether culture be taken into account to how it should be taken into account. Thinking critically. Research evidence. How does your organization approach interactions with migrants? Does your organization align with a cultural absolutist or cultural relativist approach? How are you making this assessment? Practitioner knowledge and experience. What is your personal experience with migrants? How do these perspectives impact decision-making with these families? How do your personal biases and beliefs align with or differ from the literature? Practice-based challenges. Given the support for an adapted relativist approach, there is much belief that a lack of culturally appropriate supports undermines family stability and child well-being. This can result in unnecessary trauma through the removal of children from their families. Indeed, there is much evidence to suggest, while limited in scope, that migrants and other ethnic minority populations benefit from culturally adapted interventions. Proactive programming enhances migrant integration and minimizes more costly future interventions. A variety of opportunities have been posted for the development of culturally cognizant practice in child welfare. Worker opportunities. There are a variety of issues that go into understanding the decision-making process of child welfare workers in terms of engaging migrant families and children. Variation in knowledge levels is one such factor. 
Many have noted workers' varying knowledge levels of both formal and informal opportunities, with particular consequences for each. Worker understanding of the migrant experiences can impact assessment and intervention tactics. Further, without understanding the background of migrants, it is difficult to identify the appropriate services. Thus, it has been argued that it is essential to know the specific cultural migration experiences in order to understand the interplay between trauma, resettlement issues, and family bonding and child well-being. The capacity and commitment to seek out resources is essential when there are often a myriad of localized resources available. It has been noted that worker differences have resulted in rather wide differences in ability to connect families with service providers. A varied knowledge base of resources has meaningful consequences to the access of services by migrants, creating an arbitrariness of practice. Differing motivation, capacity, and knowledge bases all influence the adoption of culturally competent practice. Yet it is evident from our discussion so far that there is room for personal agency and that child welfare practitioners are not entirely bound to organizational or sector norms. What is paramount is a personal willingness and commitment to practice cultural competence. Methods matter. How one measures a concept has important ramifications for results of a study. Given the variety of work focusing on cultural competence, a clear, measurable means of understanding the concept is essential. This involves grounding concepts into practical, observable measures. Indeed, much research has documented the rise in cultural competence and the recognition that culture is a critical dimension that inherently informs the delivery of services for a population of culturally diverse families. In this sense, child welfare workers are situated in the position to gain knowledge through everyday practice, including through primary sources, be they families, colleagues, or the community. In order to truly practice cultural competency, three significant characteristics are thought to be needed. First, one is required to self-reflect on one's own personal approaches to learning in general and cross-cultural learning more specifically. This reflection includes recognizing and addressing one's own biases. Second, a worker needs to have the means to seek out technical and substantive cultural knowledge. To do so involves generating a depth of knowledge through personal pursuit, training, and organizational support that increases competency levels. Finally, a level of sensitivity is required. Sensitivity refers to the ability to take into account the cultural norms at play. With these qualities, workers are able to know when it is appropriate to consider cultural factors and as such are able to take cultural differences into account without compromising protection of children from harm. It allows one to balance cultural knowledge and sensitivity with the required parity and service delivery. Community Outreach Given the depth of knowledge required to be culturally competent, other avenues have been put forth to achieve competency. This includes seeking out relationships with external stakeholders, including hiring external cultural specialists to engage with families, for example interpreters, and developing external collaborations with specified protocols. Organizations that have sought out collaborative practices have generally used a variety of outreach approaches with the aim of improving service through specialized programming. Such programs are important as they can be used to bridge language and cultural differences, 
and support cultural transition of migrants. Without such programs, families would have a greater likelihood of being improperly assessed and threaten timely planning, putting them at increased risk. Collaboration in particular with the local community is thought to be crucial, especially considering that communities serve as the hub for immigration and integration, where social, economic, and political incorporation of migrants occurs. Examples of collaborations between child welfare services and cultural organizations have been documented and several commonalities emerge. Perhaps the most universal has been the reliance on community organizations to provide cultural accountability. This knowledge is then used to develop service plans that take into account issues such as migration and settlement history, cultural practices, religious traditions, cultural adaptation, such as language, and length of time in the country. One program utilized community consultations to assist in informing program staff about relevant cultural factors and service delivery preferences that greatly influenced assessments. An organization in London, Ontario, partnered specifically with the Muslim Resource Centre to improve services to the Muslim community, whom have been overrepresented in out-of-home care. With the consent of the family, members of the centre and the broader community became involved in the progression of the case, providing an essential cultural lens, along with traditional supports to the family. Another strategy includes a concerted effort to expand beyond child protection and provide transitional supports to migrant families. One collaborative program, for example, had a mandated dual focus on both child welfare services, including families' parenting, and assistance and cultural orientation to aid in improving the likelihood of a successful adaption to life in a new country. Similarly, another multi-model program not only focused on child safety, parenting skills, and strengthening attachment, but also migrant-focused objectives, including assisting the family's cultural transition, trauma therapy, and preparation for school. A further feature of the case studies has been that collaboration not only included cultural organizations bringing in expertise, but also wraparound social services from other social welfare sectors, including health and employment. One program developed a collaborative process involving a child welfare caseworker, clinical consultants and interpreters to allow for supporting services, such as specialized domestic violence services, employment services, and ESL training. Other programs looked to not only enhance child welfare service delivery through collaboration, but to also create new infrastructure to assist in service delivery. In Calgary, collaboration included the creation of a call center, a vehicle for information sharing about migrant families, their culture, and the availability of culturally appropriate resources. Immigrant services agencies provided cultural expertise, consultation, and direct service such as referrals on housing and legal assistance, while the child welfare role was to ensure safety, security, and well-being of children. Finally, given the need to devote attention to varied cultural characteristics, there was an expectation that success could only occur with the management of small caseloads. One program characterized case involvement as tailored interventions. Another program limited caseloads eight per caseworker, allowing for more qualitative interactions with families. Expanding current practices. Another potential strategy is to build upon existing programs already utilized by child welfare organizations. 
This entails, at times, culturally adapting programs. Examples include family group conferencing, which involves kinship and planning and child well-being. It promotes a family rights focus while providing wraparound supportive services for children and caregivers. Another example is family finding programs that expand family involvement to include migrant family members living in the host country, as well as family members beyond state borders. While such programs face barriers in that they often require significant resource commitments, including training and staffing, they are found in many child welfare organizations and act as an alternative, particularly for smaller organizations that may not have many migrant cases. Development of in-house programs and practices. In-house programming can involve everything from staff training to specialized teams undertaking migrant cases. What is common to these programs is that the child welfare organizations have set an expectation to internalize cultural competency, ensuring independent operation and internal expertise. Perhaps the most viable internal response is the hiring of staff that reflects the community to allow for the possibility of culturally matched cases. Other initiatives include expanding agency communication outlets to educate particular populations about the child welfare system, including the migrant population, through presentations and leaflets. Further, organizations may devote resources to data collection to understand the impacts of child welfare services on migrants. Methods matter. Data collection is a potentially valuable exercise if done thoroughly. This includes training staff to ably extract specific details of both migrants and non-migrants to allow for comparisons. When done in a fulsome manner, such data can be compared to census results as well as compared internally to understand possible differences in service responses and outcomes. Many have advocated for culturally competent child protection service training of staff, as well as education for migrant caregivers involved with child welfare services. For migrants, training expectations often involve improving the understanding of rights and responsibilities within state legislation, as well as cultural norms, including parenting practices. Thus, internal training can be a key component for both workers and migrant families. Creativity offers another means of affecting better service for migrants within an organization. One organization, for instance, implemented play-based training jointly with trauma-informed interventions for unaccompanied migrant youth. Such a program created an environment that is both safe and fun while allowing for meaningful connections and engagement with young people. A further benefit of such a program has been a reduction in work-related stress and burnout. Alternatively, some child welfare organizations have opted for developing specialized services. One example is the creation of a multicultural caseworker that provides insights to workers with culturally relevant cases. Another is the development of specialized teams. In Ontario, one agency has created an immigration team that provides the full spectrum of child welfare services. This not only means being cognizant and reflective of migrant experiences, but also knowledgeable with both immigration laws and the appropriate services in the community. In addition to providing services to families, the immigration team performs consultations for other workers who may be unsure of how to proceed with possible immigration cases, as well as other agencies keen on understanding best practice approaches to working with migrant populations. 
Recently, the same organization created a specialized Syrian refugee program as a response to the influx of Syrian refugees coming to Canada. Led by an Arabic-speaking practitioner, the program assists refugees in understanding the parenting practices and legislation in Canada, how to access community resources, and providing child welfare services. As with the larger immigration team, the Syrian-led team also assists other agencies with questions. Thinking critically. Organizational experiences. What types of programs are available in your agency for migrant families? How supportive is your organization in becoming culturally competent? Have these programs been evaluated? If not, how can your organization promote effective practice by evaluating these programs? Practitioner knowledge and experience. What intervention approach would best work for you? What avenues do you take when working with a migrant family? Evaluation. While our discussion so far suggests some analysis has been undertaken on the prescriptive measures taken to increase cultural competence in the child welfare sector, there has generally been very little research conducted on the needs of migrants and how best to meet those needs. This has two significant ramifications. First, few research projects means less clarity in trends and tendencies. What are common characteristics of programs and practices that might be valuable to know when implementing interventions? Second, the effect of few research projects is that even less is done to evaluate the quality of these programs and the impact that they have. That is, do they work? With few exceptions, the case study examples discussed above were convenient studies, not systematically evaluated. Little attempt has been made to test empirically whether actions of interventions lead to anticipated outcomes. Thus, it remains unclear whether the interventions we have discussed are effective in achieving their intended goals. One exception to the lack of evaluation is the work by Para Cardona and colleagues, who examined the impact of an evidence-based caregiver training intervention. Previously, research on the training program had indicated it to be effective, yet it was unclear if its effectiveness was uniform across all cultural groups. The question that arose was this, what components were most culturally relevant and appropriate? Using comparative interventions, the researchers concluded that much support existed for culturally specific sessions and discussions on cultural issues that directly impacted parenting practices. Studies such as this one are essential to not only understanding the value of a program, but also the relevance of employing cultural competency to existing programs. Methods matter. All types of research methodology have their strengths and limitations, which results in their knowledge claim. Given the nature of child welfare work, randomized controlled trial studies are difficult, but important to answer the question of program effectiveness. Importantly, research questions should be answered by specific methodology. If there is no research available that meets your methodology requirements, you must consider research findings with even more caution than if you had a methodology that meets your needs. It is important to think critically about research and its application to practice. A key skill in this area is to think about the methodology and the study's knowledge claim. For example, if a study aims to measure the effectiveness of a support program for migrants, 
and the research methodology is a focus group, including child welfare workers, expressing their perceptions of the program. The authors cannot claim that the program works. For more information on matching your research question to methodology, see the Getting Started tab at www.partcanada.org. Conclusions. What did we learn? The current research on child welfare interventions involving migrants is rather modest, yet is fairly one-directional. It supports interventions that take into account cultural variations and experiences to inform decisions about possible maltreatment. Interventions can be at the individual level or organizationally. Organizational case studies suggested that collaboration and in-house programming are the most prominent forms of interventions. More work is needed in detailing the types of programs and practices currently undertaken in the child welfare sector, along with more rigorous evaluation of the outcomes such interventions create. Key Summary Points The academic community overwhelmingly views the child welfare-migrant relationship through a cultural relativist lens asserting that culture is an important characteristic to take into consideration when working with families and children. Interventions can come from both the individual or organizational levels. While organizational support is helpful, individuals have the capacity to practice cultural competency. At the organizational level, interventions are usually either developed in-house or are collaborations with cultural community organizations. Much of the research on collaborative interventions also speaks of the importance of working together with other social services. There is relatively little research on prescriptive measures, and what has been done is often descriptive, with less attention on identifying causal relationships. You have been listening to the Parkcast series, episode 43, part 2. The Parkcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about and additional resources on this episode's topic, the Parkcast series, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org.